Welcome back to Equipping Hour. It's been a couple months off, other than last week. We had a report from the Mitchells, our missionary partners, and uh, hard to follow that. I don't have any pictures of my house destroyed in an earthquake or anything like that. But uh, no, but it's, it's a, a privilege to be back, and it's a joy to be back with uh, this class, back into the fall after our break. I hope you're refreshed, but also you're eager to get back to learning together. Now, uh, I'm going to pray and start us off, and then we'll kind of introduce the course before getting into today's lesson. Father, we thank you for gathering us this morning. All of your purposes for us as a church are good and gracious. Uh, We're your people in Christ, and you're our Father, and you pour out blessings as a generous and bountiful God. And um, we know that you have a, a rich spiritual feast laid out for us today in your word, and especially in the Lord's table that we get to enjoy later this evening. Um, What a privilege it is to be your people and to gather to worship you. We pray this morning that in this class in particular, you'd give me wisdom and clarity in speech. Give us all open ears. Give us all alertness of mind. We pray that we would be better equipped to profit from your word as we look to the book of Genesis and as we start moving through the Old Testament. Uh, We want to have eyes spiritually opened by you. And we want to be alert to what you are saying in your word and how better to read it both to understand and know you, and also to live for you. So please give us great help by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so when we left off on this class last spring, can anyone remember that far back, what did we cover the last series of the spring? Wow. A long time ago. We talked about it. Uh, we did some ethnic justice. That was in the spring, but we did another series after that. It's coming to me. Hold on. <laughs> It'd have to do with meeting with God. Okay, good. Meeting with God. Uh, you, you know you're safe with the Sunday school answer of God at that point. Um, we talked about spiritual disciplines. And we talked about different ways of engaging with Scripture, God's written word. And if you've ever tried to begin a habit of private Bible reading, then you have certainly bumped into challenges. And one of the challenges that I wager you've you've encountered if you've done this is that many parts of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, it can be hard for us to find spiritual profit and application from what we read. We know that there are certain sections, especially the Old Testament, that are kind of notorious for being difficult in that regard. It can feel like a wasteland in some of the genealogies and the laws and the narratives going, okay, I see all this stuff happening, all these words, but what, what's here for me? What is God telling me here? And one of the cornerstone texts that we saw in last spring's course about meeting with God, kind of that sets the whole vision for what we're seeking, is in Psalm 1. I'm going to read that psalm. It's, a, it's an amazing psalm. It's an amazing text. Um, and it really is, in a lot of ways, sets the, the cornerstone for the whole Psalter, the whole book of Psalms. And it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law, or that means the teaching of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. 
there are great blessings to be had in a life saturated in Scripture. Uh, Jesus lived like this. He was the, the ultimate Psalm 1 man. And if you look at his life, he was filled with wisdom and righteousness and mercy. And he was just so God-centered. He knew God's will and he delighted in doing God's will. And many places the New Testament affirms for us, New Covenant believers, the spiritual value of the Old Testament scriptures. So then that drives us to ask, again with our experience, how do we better reap spiritual benefit from the Old Testament? Well, there's a few different ways we could attack this. Uh, consider like the, uh, the analogy of putting together a thousand piece puzzle. Some of you may love puzzles, some of you may not. But just imagine a big thousand piece puzzle. Now, there's a few different ways you could get, get a puzzle together. One of them is that we could, um, we could sit at the feet of a puzzle master and say, teach me your ways. Teach me your techniques and your strategies. I want to know how you do this. You could learn certain principles that just in general will help you with puzzles. And this would be analogous to studying tools of interpretation. This is called hermeneutics. Just how do you interpret the Bible? Another way you could attack this puzzle is by studying the picture on the puzzle box. Right? Just really, really studying all the detail and getting to know that picture really, really well. The whole picture. And analogous to that would be the discipline that's called biblical theology. Just gaining familiarity with the biblical story as a whole. What is the shape of the whole story? Where is it going? What are the main features? And to know this will better help us gain, uh, gain profit from the, the parts but the third way we could attack it would be to, uh, to look at your individual piece and just to look very carefully at each individual piece and to go, hmm, th- this has certain attributes uh, that seem like they belong in this part of the puzzle and I see certain details that can help clue me into where it belongs. And this is what we're doing in this series. It's called Bible Survey. We're looking at the pieces and we're trying to gain familiarity with the content so that we can better understand what each book contains and how it fits into the larger whole. Uh, this is so. Yeah, this is called Bible survey. Now we're not looking at a really, really granular approach like each verse. Of course, we're looking at one or sometimes more than one book each time. So it's still going to move pretty quickly, but still, it's helpful to look at the pieces and better understand them uh, with an eye toward the whole the whole story and where it fits. So it's kind of these are not all like you choose between them. You, you, you do them all, right? You learn how to do puzzles. You look at the picture. You look at each piece. So um, we, we want to keep in mind that these are all important. But to, in this series, we're looking at the pieces, the Bible books. So this series is a survey of the first half of the Old Testament. And so, yeah, we're doing it for two reasons. One is to better understand how each book fits the, the whole, how each piece fits the puzzle and to better understand overall the, the whole picture of the Bible, the whole story and, and where the whole story goes. But the second reason is what I kind of introduced earlier, so that you and I, in our own engagement with Scripture, in our private Bible reading and study and meditation, we can spiritually profit more and more readily from any part of the Old Testament. Can you imagine being equipped to spiritually profit from any part of the Old Testament? Well, more and more we want to grow toward that, that competency. And so this survey is intended to help you towards that. So any remarks or questions about that kind of overall picture of the course before we delve into today's book, which is Genesis, the first book? Was my puzzle illustration confusing or did it help? Okay, good. Okay. Um, So let's talk first about the composition of Genesis. This is sort of the quick facts section of 
like the book's composition. Who wrote it, when, why, etc. Now, these matters can quickly get very thorny, very controversial. There's a lot of ink spillover, fighting over these things. And we're going to be brief here because most of you don't care or need to get into the weeds. Uh, we don't want to uh, make it too convoluted. If you have particular questions about these kind of compositional issues, authorship, etc., I'd love, myself and the other teachers would love to interact with you over the course of this course outside of class. So uh, if, if, say, sort of in a, an apologetic way or you've interacted with other scholarship and, um, and you have questions, certainly seek us out. But for the sake of the whole class, we'll be a little bit brief with these things. Um, but today's background discussion or composition discussion is actually going to apply to the, the next few lessons because it all pertains together to what's called the Pentateuch. The books of Moses. That is the first five books. That's what the Penta uh, indicates. The first five books of the, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Now, is there anyone... I don't want to be too picky here. Let me see who's here. Is there anyone under 14 who might want to tell us what the five books of the Pentateuch are? The first five books of the Bible. There aren't too many of you in the room, so it's okay if no one wants to, but... I want to give you the first crack at it. Anyone under 14? You going to check with your parents first? <laughs> Make sure you got it. <laughs> it's okay, it's okay. This is a very on-the-spot thing. No shame if you don't want to say it. I totally get it. Oh, I see a hand. Um, it's the first five books in the Bible that Moses wrote. Yeah. Do you know them? You're not under 14, I know Good job, Lillian. Yes, she got the five. So this will be a little, a little bit of a longer discussion, but we won't really talk about this stuff for the next four books. This will just apply to the whole Pentateuch. So first, let's talk about authorship. Uh, the Pentateuch is also called the Law or the Torah, which is this Hebrew for Law. Um, which, by the way, it doesn't simply mean list of rules. It's a broader sense of teaching. So whenever you say the word law, just understand it's God's teaching. It is rules, but it's, it's a little bit broader than simply do's and don'ts. Um, but nowhere inside the Pentateuch do we have an explicit uh, claim to authorship. It's not like an epistle where it says, thus, you know, Moses to the churches of whatever. It doesn't say there anywhere inside. But the rest of the Bible consistently looks back on these five books and calls them the books of Moses. Or refers to the contents as things that Moses wrote. So you'll see language uh, like, we won't look there, but if you look in places like Second Chronicles 25 verse 4, or Ezra 6.18, or even in the New Testament, you have Jesus who will just casually refer to the contents of the Pentateuch and say, Moses wrote, like in Matthew 19.7 or Matthew 22.24. So it's clear that the testimony of the whole Bible is that these are the books of Moses. And he is the main leader of God's people throughout the narratives of most of these books. But if you read the Pentateuch carefully, you will notice that there are a few bits in there that would not make sense for Moses to have written. Specifically, uh, the final chapter, Deuteronomy 34, tells the story of Moses' death. Which he probably didn't write. Uh, there are also a few place names that are scattered in the description of events that, are, that would be anachronistic, meaning they wouldn't, no one in Moses' time would have used those terms for place names. Uh, for instance, Genesis 11.31, Genesis 14, excuse me, 14.14, 14, 
chapter 14, verse 14. For instance, you have a, like a place referenced as Dan, which is a tribal territory way later on in Israel's history. So uh, we don't know. Um, we don't know exactly how this looked. But uh, the final form seems to have received a little bit of editing after Moses. But it was substantially, it was basically written by Moses. We don't have to get any heartburn over this and say, oh my goodness, we have no idea who wrote it. Is it even authoritative? Because again, this is the beauty of, of, of having the New Testament and its view of the Old Testament. By Jesus' day, um, the books of the law were, they were stable, they were known, they were accepted as canon, as God's word, and they were ascribed to Moses. And so I'd say good enough for Jesus, good enough for us. So we can basically say they were written by Moses, maybe a little bit later editing. Regarding dating, um, the, this is a good, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to blitz you with dates to memorize. We don't do history that way, but they can be helpful. A few big dates. And as you think about the Bible and you think about the chronology of the Old Testament, one date that probably you should remember is the Exodus from Egypt. Does anyone know when the Exodus from Egypt took place? Anyone who didn't go to seminary? <laughs> You're very close. Four, okay, four, you said 1406. That was a conquest, roughly. So 1446 would have been the Exodus. And then those of you who know the story, it's about 40 years later that they enter the promised land of Canaan. So um, the Pentateuch was written sometime in that period. Okay, sometime during that, that period. And uh, we don't know within that. We don't know exactly when Moses wrote each of these books. Uh, some of them seems like maybe they were being written as they were happening, at least like Exodus through uh, Deuteronomy. But Genesis, we especially, we don't know when in that period. But it was sometime in that period that it would have been written. And uh, regarding the purpose of these books, well, the Pentateuch is so important. It's the foundation of the whole Bible. It's the foundation of Israel's life as a nation and of their covenant relationship with Yahweh the Lord. Now, most of the books of the Pentateuch are telling the story of how Yahweh comes near the nation. He makes them their own. He redeems them from slavery and he leads them to the promised land. And all along the way of that journey, he's interspersing instructions for them about how to live as his covenant people. So that's the main story of the Pentateuch. It's narrative with law kind of mixed in. But Genesis is a little bit different because Genesis is... Um, the, the, the events of Genesis predate the, the, the author and the recipients of the Pentateuch, right? Uh, Moses wasn't around when this stuff happened, and neither were the children of Israel that he's ministering to, he's writing for. It's their origin story. And so it's written to kind of explain to them not only their past, but how their past ties into the kind of the roots of their past tie into the bigger story of what God is doing with the whole world. Genesis, this is some of these things we could take for granted because we're familiar, but just to consider, Genesis is so important because it shows that Israel's story is the story of the whole world. That what God is doing in this one nation actually pertains to his plan and, and the problem that's afflicted the entire creation. If you could just imagine, you could do this with all the books we cover. Imagine that there were no book of Genesis. Imagine that your Bible just didn't have that. And you open to page one, you get, you know, you, you start opening the pages, past table of contents. Page one, what do you find? The children of Israel are populating and multiplying in the nation of Egypt. You're like, who are, the, who are the people of Israel? Why are they in Egypt? Why does this matter? Why are we going to start seeing God rescuing them from there? Why would he do that? You have all these questions that 
And then why is this story even important for us? All these questions that would be left hanging if we didn't have Genesis to give us an origin story to explain the significance of the events that follow. Um, Finally, with regard to these kind of compositional things, I do want to make a little bit of note. Like I said, we're not going to go into the weeds and the controversies, but I do want to just bring up that there have been some critical approaches that uh, scholarship has taken to these things. This is not just the Pentateuch. This is really the whole Bible. But uh, sadly, starting in the 1700s, scholars started adopting what could be called historical critical approaches. Uh, Basically, what this means is they're not looking at these books the way the church always did, as revelation of God, but as merely historical human documents. They're merely human documents. So they, they, they put on their white coats, and they put on their lab goggles, and they put the Pentateuch on the lab bench, and they start cutting and prodding, and they start trying to figure out what they find. And, and lo and behold, what they find is all these theories emerge about how uh, the Pentateuch is the result of various different human sources. And they start identifying these different sources, and maybe these sources that represent conflicting agendas, conflicting theological or political Agendas, and they're sort of tr- each one is sort of trying to shape the Hebrew religion in their own way. And so, the final form of the books has nothing to do with Moses and even less to do with God Himself. It's simply um, the record of different parties, different people within the Jewish religion, the Jewish nation trying to shape the religion for their own purposes. Now, um, this represents, I hope you can see, a key parting of the ways for us. Uh, because it's true. I mean, they can point to tensions between... You can, you can find places in the Bible that seem to be in tension with each other, what they're saying. Uh, and you could go down the road of saying, oh, aha, this is a contradiction because you have these written by different people and they're trying to achieve different ends. Um, but what do we do with those kinds of tensions uh, that, we, that we find in the Bible where they're kind of... They're, they're seeming to be... Uh, maybe we might be tempted to think they're contradictions or they're pulling in slightly different directions. Well, we could, again, on the one hand, is this a mark of conflict and contradiction between rival human religious parties? Or are we bumping into divine mystery? Are we bumping into something where God is challenging our limited understanding and inviting us to lean in with humility and realize, well, maybe there's something we don't understand here about God. <laughs> maybe, maybe God is deeper than we are, and maybe the words that he's written are deeper than we are, and we're encountering a book that is wiser than we are. We have to learn from it rather than just deciding that it is uh, not making sense. Maybe you've run into these kinds of things in your own Bible reading, and there's that temptation. It's kind of a crossroads. We go, am I going to go down the road of scoffing at the Bible or finding problems, or am I going to go, huh, there's something that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Maybe I I need to learn something from God here. The the church has always understood that the latter is the right answer. The, The Bible is the word of God. And so when we approach the text expecting to find coherence, expecting to find it speak with one voice and with literary beauty and, uh, and, and consistency, that is exactly what we find. So it's kind of one of those things that you kind of get out of it what you expect. If you go in expecting it to, uh, to, to be this hodgepodge of human opinions, you're going to be able to kind of make it seem that way. Uh, if you go in trusting it to be the word of God, you find amazing beauty. We've all experienced this, those of us who know Christ, who have read the scriptures. 
So that leads us to talking about the literary structure. But before we do, I want to just open up and ask if there's any, we've covered you know, some ground here with this composition stuff, authorship and purpose and all that. Are there any questions or, or remarks about these things we've covered? Yeah, Smokey. This is just an observation from some, some things I had to read, and it's, the Bible is written um, in a way that's the way we would communicate one another to, with, with one another. So it's when we would say there are 14,000 people over there, we're not actually mm-hmm. counting them. The scripture isn't a science book. Mm-hmm. Stuff like that that's extremely simple, but people can go after as their little pet peeves in order to challenge its authority. Yeah. When in fact they're so simple and the realization that the authors are communicating as other humans, not as strange beings, removes a lot of mm-hmm. that and helps a lot. Yeah, so there are some just normal normal properties of communication like imprecision. Imprecision is not inaccuracy to say there were 14,000 people when there were, that's not to the one accurate. That's not wrong. That's the that's normal way that that we communicate. So we ought not to hold scripture to false um, expectations regarding what truthfulness is. That's that's true. And there's a lot more there's a much more of a discussion to be had over you know, the Bible's truthfulness. We affirm fully the Bible's truthfulness, but we have to maybe clarify against some of the accusations that those the, the folks who bring against it. That's true. Um, a lot of this comes down to our presuppositions and our, our hearts, our desires, and what we want the Bible to be. Um, it's, it's amazing how our desires can shape these things, um, which the Bible makes clear as well. Um, any other thoughts? Thanks, Smokey. Appreciate that. Any other, any other thoughts or questions about these things? Yeah, Matt. Encountered people who are critical of the Bible, and I think that some of the characters in the Bible are unsavory, so therefore the Bible is approving of those behaviors. Yeah, that's an important distinction. Yes, yes. Some people will point out the yeah Genesis is is uh, fertile ground for that kind of thing. You're pointing out uh, biblical characters and their moral faults and saying, "Oh, look, the Bible. Look at this. this is a problem with the Bible." In fact, that's. In my mind, that's actually great evidence for the truthfulness of the Bible and the God-centeredness of the Bible. That God is, as people have said, God is drawing straight lines with crooked sticks and, um, and exalts his supremacy and grace and power. And it, it, maybe I think maybe what you're alluding to in the way you said that too is a narrative description does not imply a, uh, a commendation. Just as, because something happens in the Bible doesn't mean that it is being commended. You have to re- read the narrative carefully. The narrator is sometimes implying a negative judgment against the, the, the actions in the narrative. So, so you can't just say everything that was done in the Bible is, is to be repeated. It's absolutely right. So um, let's move on and talk about the literary structure. We won't go super long on this either. But uh, And if you have any like study Bibles, um, any study Bible, this, by the way, this is a great resource. Any study Bible that you have will have outlines of the books. And they're all going to differ a little bit, but they're probably all going to be pretty good. And some, some books are pretty 
clear to outline. Others are not. <laughs> Isaiah, 1 John, <laughs> sometimes can be hard to outline. Genesis is relatively easy to outline. And there are actually a couple of different ways that it can be done. We'll look at. One of them is a structure. And Greg has preached through Genesis recently. So some of this is going to be familiar. But way back when he started, he talked about the Toledoth. Uh, which is, I don't like throwing Greek and Hebrew terms around, but this is a, a helpful one to know. It's called the Toledoth. And uh, there are 11 of these. It's a key Hebrew word that shows up in Genesis and doesn't show up this way in other books of the Bible. Um, and it can be translated as these are the generations of. That may be how your Bible translates it, something like that. Um, and I have in your handout all the references in Genesis you can see. And uh, what the Toledoth do is it breaks the book into a series of episodes. And the first one is the Toledo of the heavens and the earth. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. This is in 2-4, kind of in the midst of the creation account. And uh, all the other ones are the, our names. These are the generations of Abram, Terah, uh, etc., Esau, Jacob, and, and down the line. Now, like I said, the Toledoth make the, the book a series of episodes. It's definitely an intentional literary structure. So this, this seems to be what the author used uh, to kind of write the story and piece it together. And one thing that's really interesting about the Toledoth is that they focus on genealogical descent as a key driver for the story. Just think about it, just to say, instead of saying, now let's talk about, which is kind of functionally what it is, but it specifically uses the term of generations, which focuses our attention on descent, which, as we'll talk about in a moment, is a really key, a key issue in the book of Genesis in particular. It's kind of like you're sitting with your great-grandpa and you've got a family tree like laid out in front of you and he's looking in and pointing and saying, now, now let me tell you about my grandma, Gertrude, you know, and, and her, uh, her, the chronicles of Gertrude. You know. It's kind of like that. We're kind of moving through families and looking at stories related to different people down the line. Uh, the other way that we could... Uh, break down this book is a, a big division that I have here. It's called primeval and patriarchal. Primeval just means like ancient, very, very old, ancient. Patriarchal. What is, what is a patriarch? This is from a Latin root. Father. Yeah. Uh, so it has to do with fathers. Okay. Uh, actually, it's not Latin. It's Greek. Sorry. Um, patriarch. So, so um, two major divisions. The first 11 chapters are telling um, stories about the very ancient world, and they feature four main events. Okay? These first 11 chapters feature four big events. There's a, little, there's a little bit of action kind of in between them, connecting them, but they, these four kind of tower over the, that narrative. Can anyone name any of them? What are the four biggest things that happen in those first 11 chapters? Yeah, Lord. Creation Oh, you had them all. Okay, <laughs> Lori's going to make this quick for us. I appreciate. I appreciate that. Yeah, cre- yeah. Creation, fall, flood, and the Tower of Babel. Those are the four big things that happen, and all of them pertain to everyone in the world, don't they? This is a story of every single person who's ever lived. Um, and and then something changes with the turn to chapter twelve. And, and so the, the, the book was telling these huge epic stories about what's going on with all of creation. And then if we imagine it like a, a movie, the, we've been panning across you know, eons of time and all these, all these things happening. And then zoop, the camera fo- zooms in suddenly on one guy at chapter 12. 
And suddenly the whole rest of the story is going to be on this guy and his offspring. And so that's a, a major division. Um, this second portion then is patriarchal pertaining to fathers. These four, so we had four events, now four people. Is that nice? Four events, four people. In the patriarchal section that kind of framed the whole uh, action. Who are the four, who are any, if you want to name any of the four people, you could pull Lori and give, give all of them, or just name any of them that come to mind. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. There you go. Those are the four main people that framed the, the narrative in 12 to 50. But um, in breaking it up this way, we do want to make clear that it's still one story. Okay, it's, it is very, the, the first 11 chapters are very important for the rest because the first 11 chapters introduce the problem and some hints at the coming solution. But then starting in chapter 12, the narrative focuses on the family that God will use to be the solution. And so we have a problem set up in these kind of big, epic, primeval events. And then we have a zooming in on, here's what God's going to do about that problem. Introduce Abram. And on we go with this family. So that's kind of two, uh, two main ways to break down the book. Um, and and the, that, the patriarchal section moves through those four people we, we mentioned generationally. Um, any questions or thoughts about these outlines? Or other ways to outline it, maybe? There could be others, I don't know. These are the two most, kind of most prominent and clear that I'm aware of. Yeah, Gary. Kind of helps me through, say even through the Old Testament and even the New Testament, is that especially in these first 11 chapters of Genesis, is we learn the origin of sin. Mm hmm. And uh, we learn the origin of clothing. Mm-hmm. We learn a lot of these origins. That if you if you didn't have these, and you read about sin, mm-hmm. what is sin? It's defined right away. So yeah. You, as you see, the reports of sin. So, so the first eleven chapters dealing with the origins of these different, say, if you want to call them doctrines or ideas mm-hmm. or things that make the rest of the Bible makes sense yes. without them. And so yeah. you could perhaps organize something like that with yeah. origins of different <coughs> Yeah, you're, you're right here that the, there's so much that the, for the very early chapters of Genesis explain. We're going to get into that a little bit just here as we talk about theology, but there's so many ways that these first few chapters explain the world. Now, I mean, not only the, the biblical story, but the world that we live in every day. Um. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's for good reason that we, we spend a lot of time in these first few chapters just for explaining, yeah, explaining creation. Creation has innumerable implications on how we understand the world and the way we live. And so does our understanding of sin, which is rooted in, um, in these early chapters. So they're, um, they move through things kind of quickly, but they are, they're dense with implications because they are really at the foundation of the whole rest of what's happened in the world and what still happens. It's a very good point. We're going to kind of flesh that out as we look through some of these theological points. Appreciate that, Gary. Any other comments or questions? Yeah, Annalie. Mm-hmm. Bible, creation, fall, redemption, mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so, so that's a really good outline for the, the big story of the Bible that Annalie gave us. We've talked about this in previous classes. I'm glad you, you knew it just off by heart. That's great. Creation, fall, redemption, and, and a new creation. Um, and the events of creation and fall are, think about it, the first three chapters of the entire Bible give us the events of those creation and fall, the first two kind of major chapters of the big story. Now, there's a lot of ways in which the fall, the implications of the fall are being teased out throughout much of scripture as well as redemption anticipated and accomplished. So we hear a lot more about actually creation and fall in later chapters, but the actual events happen in just the first three chapters. So they are massively important chapters. This is, we look at the whole, the whole story, the, the, the puzzle box, right? We look, we're like, that's a lot going on here in the early chapters. So Genesis rewards careful study and reading, even just for that reason. Um, let's move on and talk about some theological themes. Um, there's a lot of theology that you'll find in Genesis. This is not exhaustive, but these are just some big points, some big themes theologically that, that will be prominent as you read through. And again, the point of this is to equip you to kind of tune your antenna for what sorts of things to be looking for as you read. Narratives can communicate truth in powerful ways, in evocative ways, memorable ways. But part of what's hard is it can be um, it can be a little hard to read a narrative and go, well, what, what was sort of the, the point of that? What was the author trying to get across to me uh, in this series of events? So some of these big picture themes can help us sort of make sense of the narratives. So first of all, I'll ask another question. On, we're talking about creation, okay? Does anyone have the first verse of Genesis memorized? I'm sure a lot of you do. <laughs> Marina, I saw that hand. You're under 14, so you got to do it. Very good. Yeah, very good. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So this is the summary of creation. And the next two chapters unfold the the narrative of creation from there and how God really ordered and populated his creation. Now, sometimes we we rush past the fact that Yahweh created heaven and earth. We uh, sometimes, because of, of controversies that have gone on over the last century or so, uh, we might fixate on the chronology uh, of creation, and I'm not claiming that that's unimportant, like how long did it take, when did it happen. But chronology is not the main point of the narrative. That's not the main reason it's in the Bible, is to, to, to talk about these facts. The main point that we ought not to rush past and take for granted is that unlike all of the other ancient Near Eastern origin myths with the pagan gods, Yahweh stands over everything. That verse one is a massive verse in terms of implication. It's a fighting verse too. It's, it's, it's a critique against other stories of origins that would be trafficking in the, this ancient Near East. It's a Yahweh made everything. No one else claimed that about any other God. And so the fundamental distinction in, of all reality and of our theology is the, is the distinction between the creator and the creature. That is a very important distinction the creator and the creature, the creator and everything the creator made. And he's sovereign over all of it. So that's one thing that the creation narrative theologically establishes for us. But there's more. Um, Genesis doesn't just tell us that God created everything, but it stresses the original um, ordered goodness of creation. How do we see the ordered goodness of creation in the creation narrative? For those of you who are familiar with the first couple of chapters, yeah, Matt. 
Not every step, he's like, mm, good. <laughs> every, every day, so he creates heaven and earth, and the next six days, he orders them. He separates, he organizes. And then the next three days, he fills them with life. And they, we keep being punctuated with, he saw that it was good. And then the real, the climax of that whole thing is that in 131, when he's done with everything, he saw, it says, God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. So this is the crowning verdict over his creation. is mm, very good. <laughs> Um, and I, I said ordered goodness because part of what the creation account is emphasizing to us is the way that God is, separ- you know, all these separations, heaven and earth and the waters and the land, it's, it's, and then filling with life. It's showing how, how organized and wise the creation is. And part of the, the goodness of creation is that he made us. In verses 26 to 28, he made us male and female in his own image. That's a part of the very goodness of his creation is how we were made. He commissioned us to represent him as his righteous rulers on the earth. And also, part of his creational goodness is at the end of chapter 2 when he institutes marriage between the man and the woman. That's a part of, that's a part of the creation narrative and part of the, the goodness of what he's designed. And one last helpful thing to draw theologically from the creation that we'll talk about. There's a lot more we could talk about. But um, Annalie talked about how yeah, this creation, fall, redemption, recreation, or new creation. And in so many ways throughout the Bible, the, the creation kind of sets the picture for us of where everything is headed back to. It's going to actually be better than Eden, but in so many ways it's shaped like Eden. And so you see this reverberating throughout the Bible from the Psalms to the prophets to the Gospels to Revelation. You see these anticipations of Eden in the, the forward vision of the Bible. You see Edenic kinds of imagery of uh, lush vegetation and waters, you know, the four rivers that are, that are feeding the garden. This kind of imagery is intentionally pointing us back to point us forward. That's where God's taking the story through Jesus. So that's creation. Uh, let's talk about fall. Yes, God made everything very good. He made us for noble purposes in his image, but we have sadly deviated very far from that. We, people and the whole creation. Um, we read the fall account in Genesis 3, and as I said er- earlier, the fall account is an explainer for so much of the world as we know it today. Why, like to Gary's point, why, why is so much the way it is? Why is there sin and death in the world? Why are we no longer living in paradise, in that close communion with God that Adam and Eve joyed, enjoyed? Uh, the fall account also alerts us to our enemy Satan, who tempted and deceived and led them to death. Uh, that's an important truth to know. We have spiritual enemies, primarily Satan. Um, it instructs us as to the DNA of sin. Sin is prideful self-deification. Pridefully trying to get into God's place. That was the appeal. You'll be like God. You, you, you can access knowledge that he has kept from you. And that's what they fell for, trying to usurp God's place. And that is sin. Really, I mean, you could trace every sin from that, that seed of it's prideful self-deification, pridefully making ourselves to be God. Turning away from his good word to try to be God ourselves. Also, the fall account teaches us about the consequences of sin because what did God promise in chapter 2, verse 17? In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And they did. They didn't die physically right away. They died spiritually and they eventually died physically. All death flows from sin. All death is a consequence of sin. And you even see in Genesis some of the acute consequences that sin 
leads to when we see the flood, the global flood over sin in chapters 6 to 8. And then we see later on uh, fire from heaven against wicked cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. You see judgment as, as the consequence for sin. Um, finally, the, the Genesis teaching on sin sets up the whole rest of the Bible. Like, again, Annalise's comment was very helpful. I keep alluding to it. It sets up, these three chapters set up the whole rest of the Bible, right? So the narrative, I mean, narrative is driven by conflict. It's kind of an interesting kind of literary thing. Narrative is driven by conflict. And so the central conflict that drives the whole narrative of the Bible is, okay, creation is good, but creation has fallen into sin. So what is God going to do about sin? That's the conflict that drives the whole rest of the Bible's narrative. What is God going to do about this sin problem? Which leads us to promise the third theological theme. But before I go there, any, any remarks, questions about the creation or fall? Yeah, Aaron. I had a question that, you know, I've heard that the death is a spiritual death. Yeah. But I, I see it as their actual physical death was required that day. Mm-hmm. And, and God substituted the death of the sacrifice he made for their skins yeah. in their places. Does that bear? Maybe. So was was it like they should have died that day, but the animal yeah, skins... Their death was required of them the yeah. day that they ate of the apple, but then he made a sacrifice in their place. Maybe. Uh, one thing I'll say is that de- their physical death came later as a result of sin. Right. Uh, death spread to all men because all sin in, in Romans 5. Whether And it does seem like God made a kind of atoning... Um, covering for them with those animal skins. Now, whether that was a delay for their physical death, that may be. I, I don't know. Um, it, that may, we may infer that from the narrative. I'm not sure. But that's a good, good question. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's interesting, you know, when God said that all these things, they said, and God said it was good. Mm-hmm. It was good. It was good. And it's kind of amazing. He doesn't say perfect. Mm-hmm. You know? But it was, it was designed for... I'm trying to think through that. It was designed for for the good of mankind, for good things to happen, not perfect things to happen all the way through. But I just found it a little, you know, you think it's a little odd that it's it's good. You know, good, you know, kind of like when you're looking for a car, you're not looking for a car. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so is there a distinction between it was made good versus it was made perfect? It's just the kind of the different, maybe, meaning of the word good and, and how how broad good really is, but it's, he didn't use the word perfect, hmm. what I'm saying, or the word is not as uh, definitive, maybe, as it could have been in, in, in our thinking. In our mm-hmm. Well, one thing that, yeah, so you're saying good, maybe we don't want to make good mean too much in how God... No, I'm thinking that it, that it is it's broader than what we think. Oh, okay, okay. You know, and it's um, that... Uh, only good comes out of what he created. It, it, the potential, yeah, good came out of all of this that he made. But it, I guess I'm saying it, it wasn't the potential for perfection because we're not. Mm. Well, one thing we have to understand, maybe is this sort of thing. One thing we have to understand is when God made creation very good, He didn't make it uncorruptible, so it was able to be corrupted. That that. He, he did he did allow that there's mystery there in how how that did happen but yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah so it wasn't uncorruptible but it was good for its purpose and it was 
it was an overflow of his own goodness, of his character. Um, and it will be restored to that. It will be restored uncorruptible. That will be something that will be true of the new, the new creation. Yeah, okay. yeah um, Emily. Just to bring further clarity to uh, Jeff's comment is that we use the term good very casually. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm good. Yeah, and it, it means nothing. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, the term in the Bible, like he was saying, has a broader definition of what we culturally mm-hmm. use it today. Um, and so, yeah. In, without any background, to think it could be. That's true. We uh, we might not think much positive with the word good. We think lack of negative. Like, oh, I don't see any problems. Is that maybe kind of? Whereas good, there's a lot more positive going on. Like this is this is a bountiful overflow of God's wisdom and and his own his own blessedness in himself. So yeah, there's a lot. But the Bible is good is much less bland than we can use it. Yeah, Terry. Oh, I was thinking about Jeff's question. I think another good thing that comes out of us being created as good and not perfect would just point to how God created us to depend on him. Mm-hmm. If we were perfect and to create I guess some other God mm-hmm. that was self-sustaining and self like independent then that would pose a problem right there in the beginning. But because we yeah. Well, I, yeah, I would say that comes through saying like, well, part of the creation is that we're dependent on him, which is very true. I'd say that's a product of the, the creator creature relationship it is not uh, it's not a fault or defect in the creature to to need the creator it, it is uh, it, it's part of the design of making for a creator to make creatures that that we be it we always be in that relationship of creature creator um so so yeah lots of good lots of good stuff to, to chew on with these let's move on for for time and talk about the next theme which is a promise so in the wake of the very first sin god comes out with curses on everyone, but especially the serpent who is Satan. He's, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this is a very bad moment in history, but in the middle of that, God gives this beautiful glimmer of hope, of a promise that there will be enmity and ultimately victory over this serpent, this tempter who was kind of the source of sin. And this is the promise that kind of ties the whole story together. Genesis as well as the rest of the Bible, is playing out this promise. And um, kind of what Matt alluded to earlier, there's a lot of sinful, evil, and boneheaded things that go down in the book of Genesis, often at the hand of God's own people. Uh, But this beacon of hope drives the story along. This is how we know that things are going in a good direction. It's because God made this promise at the beginning of the story. Um, and this promise will just be further amplified and, and specified throughout the rest of the Old Testament as it leads to Christ, the fulfillment of the promise. Which leads us to the next point, which is seed. Okay? Seed. Because that's what was promised. What exactly was promised? A seed. A seed of the woman to have enmity with the serpent and to crush its head ultimately. And now we know this descendant is Christ. It's a beautiful picture of the cross, right? He, to, be, to be wounded but not destroyed ultimately, because he's raised again. But in the process, he crushes, he destroys the work of the devil. And we know that Christ is the seed, but all along the way, physical descent is the highway toward that fulfillment. To say, to to frame the promise in terms of seed or descendant is to indicate that physical descent is the highway to the fulfillment. And so that promise of Genesis 3.15 trains us in reading Genesis to ask, where is the seed? Where is the seed? That's what we are, we are told to expect. Where's the seed through whom God will work? And by the way, in the, the original people, they didn't know how long it would be. 
They didn't know it would be thousands of years until Jesus came. They're just going, it's going to be physical descent. That'll be how God saves us. So we keep looking, and, and where's that going to happen? That's what, by the way, I told you the Toledo structure helpfully indicates to us, right? This generations, generations, generations. That's what drives the story is generation, is descent. So when God approaches Abram in chapter 12, he's not starting something new. Okay, we see this is actually him uh, fulfilling what he'd already said back in the garden. And when he says, for instance, in 12.2, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And he reframes these promises in various ways, but he keeps promising a great nation, keeps promising offspring to you and your offspring. I'll make this covenant later on, which is seed. We see where offspring in like our ESV, that's seed or descendant. Um, so Abram is the way toward that seed fulfillment. That's what he's saying by promising these things to Abram and his offspring. And this explains, by the way, why infertility or barrenness, the old term, is so um, devastating in the Old Testament. Uh, We all know, just generally, it's a difficult trial for anyone. Children are a blessing from the Lord, and to, to, to be told no by God's providence is a very hard thing to walk through. But the theological reason is even adds acuteness to this because childbearing is participating in the plan. Childbearing is laying down the next stone on the road toward the fulfillment of God's plan. And so to, to be infertile is to kind of experience like I'm, I'm a, sort of a branch withering, disconnected from, from where this all is going. It is to feel like an outsider or a kind of a, a dead end in the plan. So uh, yeah, so that's it for seed and uh, promise and seed. Any any thoughts or questions about those elements? Yeah, Jason. It's another way that seed is a is thematic and a framing device. I mean, so the, the, the promise in three fifteen is is not just sort of you know Jesus versus the devil, but it's it's the woman's seed and Satan's seed. Yes, yeah. And so like, immediately the next door you see is Cain and Abel. Yes, sort of this breakdown in the sense. And you yes. are seeing the promise seed in contrast with the rest of humanity. And so it's it's also fulfillment of the promise, but at the same point in time, the continued degeneration of mankind undertaking. Yes, yes. So, yeah, you're right. The seed isn't just the end point, Christ, but it's the whole line toward Christ. And there's enmity between these two lines, the, the line of the devil and the line of uh, the woman leading to Christ. And so you have these two warring descents, so to speak, throughout the Bible. Cain and Abel becomes a, um, becomes a picture of that. Uh, you, that carries us through the whole Bible. You'll see that in Exodus, really, the, the, the uh, genocide of the Hebrew babies is, is, is really to be understood in that framework of this is one seed warring against the, the promised seed and so on. So, yeah, that's a very important way to just view the whole story in, in um, fulfillment of that one seed, seedling of, of a promise. Um, yeah, Tyler. Promise being made to the devil, to mm-hmm. the serpent, verse 15. Do you think there's any significance that it's directed to the serpent as mm-hmm. far as it's framed? Like, it's framed as the serpent's defeat, yeah. first and foremost, not as the man's salvation. Yeah, it's a great observation. It is interesting. I don't know what to do with that, honestly. It, it is, it's worth chewing on. Why, why does he make this great promise? It's obviously in the hearing of Adam and Eve, and it's for them. And it, it's a, I framed it as a promise. It's a good. It's a glimmer of hope to those secondary hearers, but primarily it is a prediction of doom to the to, to the serpent. 
That's interesting. I, don't, I mean, it's just worth meditating on. Yeah, I don't know. As we some of these questions that come up as we read carefully, to just kind of keep in your back pocket as we read the Bible. Um, so, oh, good question. Um, let's talk about covenant. Covenant. Um, and just as I read part of a- God's first approach to Abram to call him as a special representative on earth, uh, he keeps kind of coming back and reinforcing this. And he starts using the terminology of covenant. You start seeing it in 15 verse 18. He says, I'll make my covenant with you and your seed in that, in that text and in chapter 17. And a covenant is just an arrangement between two parties in how they're going to relate to each other. Uh, they exist between different human uh, parties and individuals. But in biblical covenants, God initiates. He comes to someone and he forms a relationship. This is how I will treat you. And it makes promises. And then this is how you're to treat me, so to speak. This is what, what you're to, to do on your side. Um, and covenants show up. Sometimes the word covenant is used. Sometimes they're just attributes of covenants. You can kind of see them happening, even if the terminology isn't always used in the text. Uh, it, 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 it certainly appears that God is making a covenant with Adam in the garden when he says, here's, here's the deal, Adam, and he gives him certain rules of what to do and what not to do and conditions on, on life versus death. Uh, he makes a covenant with Noah after the flood. He makes a covenant with Abram, and that covenant is what gets uh, renewed to Abram's descendants, Isaac and Jacob. Um, that Abrahamic covenant is very, very important throughout the whole rest of the Old Testament. Because Israel keeps blowing it. And if, if Sinai, the later covenant he makes, if that were the basis of his relationship with them, they would have been toast long ago. But he keeps saying, ah, I made that covenant with Abraham, so I'm, I'm not done with you. Um, this is, again, God's way of flagging where he's working in the world. What his plan, the, the, the direction his plan is taking is he keeps making these covenants. He keeps making these arrangements with man that involves promises to them. Um, the last the- theme is reversal. Now, th- throughout Genesis repeatedly, as we, we're looking for how where's salvation going to come from this fall, we keep finding our natural expectations being violated. Uh, what first appears to be living and successful and good will turn out to be a dead end. And what first appears to be bleak and lifeless will actually prove to be God's way. God does this so many times in Genesis. The path is full of surprising reversals. So for instance... Man falls and is exiled from Eden in chapter 3, breaking the connection between heaven and earth. That was a meeting place with God. And that connection is broken. Now, how will that connection be reforged? In chapter 11, what does man try to do from the bottom up? We're going to build a tower to heaven. We're going to reconnect the wires between heaven and earth. And God, it's prideful. It's hubris. God thwarts it. But then the connection point, it's amazing. Later on in chapter 28, the lonely Jacob wandering in the wilderness alone has this vision of what? A staircase between heaven and earth. And the Lord is saying, ah, it's through you. This is how I'm going to reconnect heaven and earth. It's through you, through your, through your seed and through what I'm doing with you. So it, it's not uh, all of man's uh, endeavors, all of man's wisdom and man's skill. It's God alone from the top. It's a rope ladder he's going to lower from the top to bring man back to him. Another reversal is that when Abram is promised to receive blessing from God, where will that come from? How will he find that? Well, the next chapter, that first promise is in chapter 12. The next chapter in 13, uh, we have, you may be familiar, Abram and his nephew Lot are trying to figure out who's going to live where. And 13.10 describes a beautiful, fertile Jordan Valley. And it looks like the garden of the Lord, it says. Eden. 
But it's also wicked. It's a place of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's a place that will ultimately be judged. So in, Lot takes that, that the, the visibly good place. Abram goes into the wilderness, highlands, and he, what does he do? He waits. He waits for his blessing from the Lord. And it turns out that that's the place you want to be. As the story goes on, you realize. The Jordan Valley turns out not to be the place where you want to live. It's the place of waiting for the Lord's blessing. Another is that uh, every generation in the patriarchs, God advances the seed promise through fertility surprises. There are always surprises with regard to childbearing. Isaac comes from 90-year-old Sarah, whose womb, Roman says, was as good as dead. Jacob comes from Rebekah, who for a time was barren, as we learn in 25.1. Jacob, sadly, has multiple wives and concubines. Uh, That was not God's intent for marriage. But it's the unloved Leah who has the most fruitful womb. Another reversal. Among the two sons of Isaac, the the older serves the younger. Chapter 25, verse 23. Another, in the book's closing chapters, Joseph, the rejected and oppressed brother, is exalted to save. I hope that sounds familiar to you. That's, That's an evocative story with regard to anticipating Christ. The rejected brother sold into slavery and to death ends up being exalted to save the brethren who betrayed him. And this reversal motif carries through the whole Bible and again it anticipates Christ. Think of Jesus and and the ironies and reversals of his own coming. He came through the lowly Virgin Mary. Uh, He came uh, as a servant of all, he says, in, in ordinary and lowly circumstances. He came as a suffering servant to save and he was humiliated in order to be exalted. This is the pattern of God working its reversals. And Genesis especially illustrates that. So any thoughts about those uh, uh, covenant or, or reversals, those themes in Genesis? Okay, Annalie. No, no, you're fine. I asked for questions. Thank you. Um, I'm just, just to clarify, there are like several different types of covenants. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily like a promise. Like it's the relationship between yeah, yeah, you're you're right. You're asking like, are there varieties of covenants with regard to what's expected? What I would say is, what's expected of the human side, man, is is there's variety. There's always some implication of how you will relate to God. God will be your your God. But sometimes he, he gives like hard conditions, like if you do X. That's what Sinai is going to have. Like, okay, guys, you've got two paths in front of you. If you do X and you follow my laws, it'll, it'll be great. <laughs> we'll talk about that in Deuteronomy. If you don't, door B, it'll be awful. So, yeah, there isn't always that kind of conditionality in every covenant. But every covenant does imply some way of relating to God. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, Chinway. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and then just also in um, uh, yeah, it just it seems like uh, I guess we call it like upside down king of the beatitude. Yes. The poor, not the rich. For James, same thing. You know, like, like yes. the rich man, you know, boasts in his humiliation with you know the poor man in his exaltation. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting things that you read, like you know, from a worldly standpoint. You see that that's contradictory to how we see the world. Yes. Um, way of operating is yes, and so it's, I guess it's a very humbling and 
Good thing to kind of just meditate on. Yes, yes. It's a a, a rich biblical motif all through the New Testament. Reality is often hidden behind contrary appearances. The spiritual reality is often hidden behind the the contrary appearances of the flesh. Uh, So that's, yeah, it's it's definitely worth meditating on that that as we see it crop up in so many ways. Let's talk about uh, application and the way, I mean, there's so many ways that various passages in Genesis will apply to us. But what I'm going to do is just kind of, again, draw some major themes of application from the major themes of theology. These will track one for one with our major theological themes. And so when you're reading or studying Genesis, you might just have these in your back pocket to ask yourself, which of these may apply to the text I'm in? Probably you're, you're never probably going to be too far from at least one of these kind of applicatory points to, to think about. Uh, one is, uh, what do we do with creation? Well, we know God is creator. We know God is our creator. Knowing the creator-creature relationship is important. I almost don't need to say that. It trains us to fear the Lord. You have texts like Proverbs 1-7 and Proverbs 9-10 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. Well, that is a function of the creator-creature distinction. It makes us humble and it trains us to define ourselves not by our, our kind of inward-looking notions or feelings or thoughts, but to define ourselves relative to who he says we are. He has a prerogative as our creator to tell us who we are. This has implications on how we view gender, marriage, family, vocation, arts, our relationship with the, the environment, authority, uh, the way we treat other human beings. Um, I mean, there's innumerable applications with regard to the creator-creature relationship, God defining for us who we are as his image bearers. And also... The doctrine of creation trains us to see goodness in his creation. Uh, there's just always this tension in how we view the world, there should be biblically, between the goodness of creation and the fallenness through which it's gone. Um, but the world is still a very good place. It's not a bad place. Creation is not a bad thing. It is a very good thing that's fallen into a, a very hard condition because of sin. And so there's just always that tension between the goodness and the fallenness of creation. Application with regard to the fall. Understanding our sin problem. Um, Knowing the genesis of sin, where sin comes from, is so helpful for understanding what a deep problem it is. And the rest of the Bible talks about this. It's not just a series of unfortunate choices that we make. Um, It is a condition that we all have from birth. Uh, You can read on your own in Romans 5, verses 12 to 21, that uh, we have inherited guilt in Adam. He was a covenant representative for us. And so we are legally guilty because we are in Adam in the garden. And he sinned for us, just like Christ obeyed for us on the cross. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 describes our natural condition as a deadness, a spiritual deadness. That is a result of sin. So the, the fall account should sober us with regard to how deep sin goes. But it also alerts us to how sin works. Again, the danger of attacking and undermining God's word. That's always going to be somewhere uh, deep, uh, deeply involved in sin. Uh, and it warns us that we are still up against an enemy who tempts. And uh, it lays bare the deadly consequences of our sin, that it leads to death. It doesn't always lead to immediate physical death, but death in some form and multiple forms is the ultimate outcome of sin. Um, the promise, what does promise lead to is to sojourn in hope. The application to draw from promise is sojourn in hope. And if Hebrews 11 is a great example of this. Hebrews 11 looks to so many uh, of the Old Testament saints as models of faith. 
and is telling Christ's people in the New Covenant, look to these Old Testament models of faith. And more than a third of that chapter is devoted to the patriarchs of Genesis. So verses 8 to 22 of Hebrews 11 is about the patriarchs, especially Abraham. There's a lot on Abraham. They waited in hope. They were armed with the amazing promises of a blessing and of a homeland and numerous descendants, but they saw none of that during their lives. So just be thinking about as you read their sojournings to realize this is a picture of waiting in hope, sojourning in a foreign land. Even, for instance, the, the text where uh, Abraham buys a plot of land to bury Sarah. Well, that's kind of important because this is the first little tiny bit of land that he owns in the land. Uh, that's anticipating a, a much greater inheritance to come. Um, and the, the author of Hebrews is right. No surprise there. The author of Hebrews is right that we're in a very similar situation. We're citizens of heaven that are waiting ultimately in a world that's not yet our home. And we're waiting for his coming city. We're waiting for his promises to be fulfilled when Christ returns. We live in tents, so to speak. That's our existence. There's a discomfort for today, but bright hope for tomorrow uh, related to our our station of being sojourners. Um, Regarding the seed... The take, one of the big takeaways from the seed is to find all blessings in Christ. And Galatians 3 is really helpful for this. Picking up on this seed promise. And Paul interprets the blessings to Abraham as a reference to the gospel of Christ. It's really amazing. The gospel of Christ for all Jews and Gentiles who believe. And so he says in Galatians 3.8, The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel, the good news, beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed, which is that that address God made to Abraham in Genesis 12. So he said, this was looking forward to the gospel, that all all who believed, Jew and Gentile, from all the nations would be blessed through the gospel of Jesus. And uh, Paul then says in Galatians 3.16, when he says, uh, it's a... It says that he made a promise to Abraham and his offspring or seed. Paul says the seed was Christ. The seed was Christ. Christ is ultimately, now as Jason said, there's seed on the way, but the ultimate seed is Christ, the crusher of the serpent, and the one in whom all the blessings of Abraham come to those who believe. So this tells us, and this is the point Paul's driving at in Galatians, is that our approval with God isn't based on our works. It's not based on our ethnicity. It's not based on signs of covenant membership like circumcision. We are set right with God by faith alone because of Jesus. That's a blessing that even Abraham enjoyed. If you remember uh, Genesis 15, 6, just quoted numerous times in the New Testament, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Yeah, that's justification by faith. It's right there in Genesis. So, Christ is the seed through whom all the blessings come. We don't look for any of God's blessings outside of the the seed, Christ. Covenant. Uh, One of the takeaways of covenant is to know God as our God. So the reason that God sticks with Abraham's family, again, it's obvious as you read, is not because of their righteous deeds, their sterling morals. It's because of his covenant of grace with them. And the God of the Bible, this is something we just, maybe we could take for granted. We just open the Bible and presume this, but the God of the Bible isn't our God simply because he's God. He's our God because we're in the new covenant of Christ. He's our God by covenant. That is covenant language. And that's the, the, the only way that we know God is our own is because of covenant. 
And uh, so we can read the, the narratives of the patriarchs and we can read about Old Testament Israel and we can relate to them. Why? Because they were in covenant with God, just as we are in covenant with God. This is why Genesis is our book, because through faith in Jesus, we are members of the new covenant. Now, if you don't believe in Christ, if you're here this morning and you're, you don't believe in Christ, then glad you're here. You need to understand that the creation is your story. Uh, the distinction between God and you. That's your story. The fall is your story. But the promises and the blessings are not your story outside of Christ. Those are only yours in Christ, in the ark of safety. You have that vivid picture of the flood. There's this one place where you can be safe from God's judgment. It is inside the ark that God has made this place of deliverance. And Christ and his covenant, that is the place of safety. So trust in Jesus alone. Take refuge in his covenant and, uh, and all of God's blessings. And none of his judgment are yours. Um, finally, reversal. What does reversal train us to do? I think Chin Wei is kind of, you're kind of getting at it in some helpful ways. Uh, that's a rich vein to keep mining through because it trains us to wait on the Lord. And it, it echoes throughout the whole scripture that the way of life for Jesus' people is not often the way that looks successful or attractive to the eyes of flesh. Um, uh, examples could multiply. Chimwe gave us some. Mark 8.34, Jesus calls it carrying our cross. That's an execution instrument. 2 Corinthians 4.18, I can't help but imagine that Paul is thinking about the patriarchs when he says this. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Uh, there can be misleading appearances. The seen things are the things that are fading. And the unseen things, the things of God's promise and his blessing are the things yet to come. They are eternal. So that trains us to be great in the kingdom of God by becoming humble servants and to lower ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he can exalt us at the proper time. It trains us that those, the blessed ones are those who mourn because they'll be comforted. These could multiply throughout the scripture. If you're waiting and suffering and serving, then in the scope of eternity, you're on the right track with Christ. So, Genesis is a good book. <laughs> we're going to have the conclusion of every lesson. I was like, this is a great book. You should read it. You've probably read it before. I would commend you to read it. Uh, keep reading it, and maybe these can be helpful uh, things to look for. But uh, Genesis sets a table of where the whole Bible is headed, and uh, you know, both with the creation fall narratives, but then setting the, setting the table for us with redemption, having us starting to train our eyes forward to how redemption is going to look. And yet these stories continue to resonate in our own lives as God's covenant people. So hope you're motivated and equipped to read it better. Um, I'll pray. If you have any questions uh, afterward, I'd be glad to interact. Father, thank you for every word you've revealed in Scripture. And we thank you that you did not leave us in the ruins of the fall, but you in your abounding grace and mercy have provided a way. And even from the very beginning, you're such a merciful God that you wanted to give hope. You wanted to give promises and you wanted to guide your people by the hand in training their faith forward. And now we look at Christ having already come and we thank you for the redemption that he's brought us. We pray that we would treasure the book of Genesis, that we would read it for great spiritual profit, that your spirit would give us continued illumination in it to know you better and to live for you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.